This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Guido's Pizza. Located on International Airport Road in Anchorage, Guido's has been serving the best pizza, pasta, sandwiches, and more since 1984. Guido's is open daily for dine-in service from 11 a.m. to midnight, and they do takeout and delivery until 2 a.m. Whether I'm dining in at Guido's or ordering for delivery, the hardest part for me is always choosing what to get because they have so many amazing items on their menu. If you're looking for a quick bite or want to order food for a big party, Guido's is the place to go. Tell them Jeff from the Landmine sent you. Okay, back here in studio, very excited uh, be joined by Paul Foos, lobbyist, former commissioner, mayor. You've kind of done a lot of things. Yeah, I've been lucky over the years. I got to say, your voice, you have a good voice for radio podcast podcasting. Sometimes I do people, they speak real soft, so I have to turn their volume way up and mine way down, but you, your voice is kind of like mine. Well, I'm a singer, so that's why... You speak from down here, not from your throat. I've seen you speak, uh, sing at karaoke in <laughs> Juno several times, and I, I love karaoke. I'm not very good, so when I go, it's kind of like a joke. When you go, people are like, God damn, this guy, <laughs> this guy is really good. It's like a show. I think I saw you at the Alaskan one time doing some karaoke. I don't know what song it was, but it was, it was amazing. Yeah. So you, we're going to talk about this marine exchange stuff, which you've been involved in for a long time, but first I want to talk a little bit about you and folks in Juneau probably have seen you around for a long time. You've been a lobbyist, and you were actually a commissioner um, a long a while back. So let's talk about how that can, came about. So that was I was mayor at Dutch Harbor. I got elected there because I was umpire for the slow pitch softball league. And you, you were mayor in Dutch Harbor. Yeah. Right? What year was that? That would be eighty six to ninety one. Okay. And they just thought I was fair. There was no Democrats or Republicans there. So I got elected to be mayor. So, you know, during that time, we had a big joint venture fishery going on with the, with the Russians and 14 international companies. So I kind of came to the attention of Wally Hickel. So he said, come on down here and uh, be my commissioner of commerce and international trade. That was his uh, second term when he won in, I guess, 90, right? Yes. And he came back. Yeah. Were you... Were you Surprise, and was that on your radar to be a commissioner? You were commerce. I was. I was kind of surprised, but it was kind of natural for me, just because of all the work we'd been doing in in Dutch Harbor. You know, infrastructure development, uh, international relations, fisheries management, uh, political. You know, dealing with the legislature and uh, the had governor. Had you spent a lot of time in Juneau at that point? I did as the mayor because we had to rebuild the infrastructure. It was all left over from World War II. So new docks, new electric systems, uh, water. Uh, we we're losing about 80% of our water and wood stave pipes, and these new processing plants need 120 million gallons of water a day. So we replaced the water lines, the sewer lines. I mean, we just really had to upgrade everything. What was it like working for, for Hickel? Because he ran as independence party right it was kind of a weird election and that i mean he was republic he was you know he was governor but back in the 60s and then he became i guess it was interior secretary and then he was kind of out for a while and then he came back as independence party was that was that kind of a what was it like working for him as governor then well you know uh it allowed him to be completely independent and uh i he started his campaign six weeks before the election and then got Jack Coghill to come over with him. Uh, this is when Cooper basically won in 86, and he's almost kind of like an afterthought. Most people don't even, aren't aware of, you know, this guy. And I heard a story that he became governor in 86, he won, and then that's when the really kind of crash happened, the recession up here, and 
he made some comment about like all bets are off. And then pretty much his whole, and then the Exxon Valdez, so pretty much his whole term, I think people were pretty clear he wasn't going to be running again. His wife didn't like it. And let's put it that way. A lot of times political, you know, a lot of decisions get made here and there. You think you got it figured out why. But uh, his wife just didn't like it at all. And I traveled with him to China and, you know, spent quite a bit of time with him. And she was just not into it at all. Cooper. So he's actually, I was talking to Mark Hickey, who knows him. He's still alive. He's in Texas. And I'm trying to get a hold of him and maybe do a, you know, because he, afterwards, he just kind of disappeared from Alaska politics, right? Yep. So why did Hickel decide, like, what was his, what was the reason he decided to come, come back? Well, I mean, his uh, whole focus was economic development. And he had a very global view of that, probably more than any other governor that we've had before or since. He really understood international relations. And, you know, while, while he was governor last time, he helped set up this Alaska Kai, which was a big uh, joint operation with the businesses in Japan. And uh, he was just very well known from that. So anyway, that's how I kind of fit into his agenda and got quite a bit of experience. Um, when, I, when I think of him, I just, for whatever reason, think of just, you know, we're going to do something, we're going to build something, we're going to build it. Like, fuck everybody else, we're going to do it. Now it's like so hard to do anything. Everything takes so long and it, it's drawn out. Sometimes it gets like this, you know, connect arm. I talk about this connect arm bridge a lot, but Juno Access Road, all these things, you know, they're supposed to happen, they never happen. And with him, I get the sense that, like, he really wanted the Captain Cook, you know, though he just built the hotel after the earthquake. And he was a guy who did, you know, did things. Yep. Yeah, he was. And uh, the other thing is that, you know, he was just completely fair. He didn't care whether you had a dollar in your pocket or $10 million. He treated everybody fair. And he told all of us as commissioners, I want you to do that. So commerce, we regulate banking, uh, all professional licensing, insurance, all of that. And... Uh, the people that work for me said it's just wonderful for us to just be able to do our job without getting a call from the governor's office saying, hey, you want to fix this for my friend or do something like that. We never got that. He was he was completely fair and honest. So so one of the things I want to ask you about, and I've, I, whenever I see you in Juno, I kind of bring it up. There's this kind of bizarre video of you. And I've, I've spent a lot of time in Russia and I uh, speak, speak Russian pretty well, so I've kind of been involved in the Russian stuff for since basically since I moved to Alaska, I met a Russian girl. We started dating and learned to speak Russian, but there's a video of you um, in Russia and it was still this, it must've been the Soviet union it because was. these guys were wearing these like Soviet military outfits and you're there with uh, what's the guy's name? Steve Nelson. And it's some kind of meeting and you guys start singing, uh, come, come, you know, back in USSR by the Beatles and they, it's like almost like a choir maybe. And they have their, kind of guy, and they're all in their uniforms, and it's on YouTube, and um, I can I can share the link, but what was that about? Why were you over there, and why, why were you singing a, a Beatles song with these Soviet uh, officers? Well, you know, we kind of started these relations, and, you know, kind of like, say, we call it, you know, melting the ice curtain is what we called it, rather than the iron curtain, but it started out with music and education exchange, so, you know, I was there for that purpose, and we went in and gave an interview at the TV station in Vladivostok, And um, so as we came down from giving that, here we are down there is the KGB border guard band, military band. And so uh, we're like, hey, we're musicians too. Let's play a song together. So, And somebody somebody happened to have a video camera? They did because we were in in the TV studio. They were about to uh, record the KGB border band playing military music to go on TV. So they had everything set up. They wheeled out this 10-foot, 
red grand piano. So, you know, we, we, you know, played it, did, did the first take on it. And, uh, the guy who was leading the band was actually a general. You can see him on there with his baton and everything. Oh so yeah, no, it's clear. This it is was, like a high level off, you know, oh, officer. Yeah. 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 So anyway, even to this day, I'll run into Russia and I mean, there were only two TV stations in all of Russia at that time. So it got played over and over and I'll even meet people today. So I know who you are. I saw you on TV, you know, and of course that was quite a few years ago. So was this at the time of, I know Alaska Airlines was doing those friendship flights. Was that after the Soviet Union ended or was, was that before? Because I know there was the Perestroika and there was some, some softening, you know, up in the you know, 80s up until, I guess, 91 when it broke up. It, it was before, but we had to take Russian airplanes in. And so that's why we did the first trip into uh, Petropavlovsk, Kamchatsky. Did you go from Anchorage or did you stop, stop we in like Nome? Anchorage. or nope. Nope. And it was a TU-154, you know, it was one of their Tupolev. jet Tupolev-154, yeah. Did the, you have uh, a visa, or did they just kind of let you come they, in? They arranged our visas for it, and this is when we had a consulate in Seattle, arranged it all. And uh, so that's how that's how we were able to go in, Petropavlovsk so and Vladivostok. So you were there as, uh, I guess, commis- com- you were commissioner then, yes. right? Were you at all, like, I mean, there's different stories about people getting you know, detained or the KGB, were you worried about that at all? Or were you kind of like, nuts? well, we did spend the night in jail. So, uh, when we were going to Sakhalin and there was a lot of Alaska businesses working over there in, uh, using those Sakhalinsk in the, in the oil fields. Mm-hmm. So we we're leading a delegation of oil field service companies from Alaska coming over, wanting to do work there. And the Russian consulate in Seattle screwed up our visas somehow. So we get to Khabarovsk and they say, immigration you can't come in your visas are no good so you guys got to spend the night in jail and uh you know get on the next airplane and go back to alaska so i was head of the delegation at the time i said you know we we can't do this so how many people were in the delegation well there were about 25 and then it was me and my deputy commissioner glenn reed who our visas were screwed up and they were saying all the visas were invalid. No, everybody else got to go on oh. they, they just stopped us so <laughs> take out the leaders you know yeah stop the leaders from coming in so anyway in the end you know uh, the the guy was pretty cool but it was a saturday so i said you got to call moscow and talk to them well they're not they're not there right now i offered i said look i'll arm wrestle you okay I win, we stay. You win, we go. He said, I can't do it. So anyway, they put us on the plane. The The uh, Seattle consulate had... Uh, they put you on the plane back. They put us on the plane back. This wasn't a bribe situation? He's looking for oh, a couple no, hundred no, bucks? No, 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 no. He was very straight up. And if he'd have screwed up, you know, it'd probably been a, a bad deal for him. So we're flying back, and the, the Seattle consulate, oh, we're so sorry, we'll send new visas over. So we're flying back. The other plane is flying back the other way with our visas. So we had to go back the next day and catch up with them. But they Wait, had, uh, did the guy speak English or would you have a translator? Uh, he had a translator there. Yeah. Okay. And so anyway, we had to spend, there was a, a cell they had at the airport, which was a jail. So we had to spend the night there. And then I got asked when we came back, wasn't this bad, you know, spending a night in a Russian jail? I said, well, it wasn't so bad. But I said, the thing is, these guys, they, they took mercy on us, the guards there, and they brought us a six-pack of Ham's beer. Who knows how the heck they ever got Ham's beer. Probably, but, probably like they were saving it for a special occasion. I, I don't know what, but they came and gave it to us. So there was no bathroom in the cell. So middle of the night, you know, 
I had to pee. So I got up. There was a window. We stacked up the desks and everything. And so when I came back, I said, that was the worst part of it, you know, as I had to get up and pee out the window. So well, yeah. Ir- Irmalee Hickel went through the roof. You can't talk like that. You can't say that. I'm like, Irmalee, come on, you know. That's Wally's wife. Says, yeah, his wife. Wally's wife. Yeah, yeah. So... But anyway, we came back and then we caught up with the delegation and, uh, you know, our companies had a lot of work. There. I know. I mean, Exxon's big, been big in Sakhalin for a yeah. long time, you know, and a lot of friends, different oil services companies have worked over there over the, in, in the yeah. past. There's a bunch of oil over there. A lot of Alaskans have been over there. But Linden and I mean, a lot of, you know, Crowley, a lot of the big companies were also operating there. So, but then when uh, sanctions came in, we lost all of that work. Mm-hmm. The, the Going Crimea, back about 10, 10 years, yeah, 20, yeah, 2014. You know, it's funny. I went to Crimea um, about nine months after the, the referendum deal in, in March of 2014. I was in Europe, had some friends living in Italy and Spain, and I've, you know, spent a lot of time in Russia. And this is after the uh, the Malaysian air deal. So I was going to Russia anyways, and I bought it. I, I noticed on, I guess it was Aeroflot, there was a ticket. From, from Moscow to Simferopol for like, yep. they were trying to get people to go there, right? They were trying to, after they took it, they were trying to get people to, you know, tourism, um, spend money. So it was like 150 bucks round trip from Anchorage to, from Moscow to Simferopol. And it was after that Malaysia deal. And I was like, because if you look, if it's, if it's a straight shot, it's right over Ukraine. And I'm like, uh, I wonder if, are we flying over Ukraine? You know, I don't know about that one. And then, no, they said, we're going, you know, you go around. Right. But I flew in there. It was, um, the, it was I guess December of fourteen, and and I spent a week in Simferopol, Sevastopol, and uh, Yalta, all over, all over basically. And you know, I I talked to a lot of people, and and the, I'm not I'm not saying it was all fair and everything with the vote and they how they took it, the Russians, but most people I talked to were for it because of all the situation in Donbass and Don, and the war. I mean, they didn't right. want that to spill over, but. One of the craziest things uh, I saw was I went to Sevastopol, the the, the mil, you know the, the the naval base, and I met this guy and I, he was a cab driver and I said you know what what does it cost to kind of take me around and show me around and he's on oh, fifty bucks the whole day you know so nice guy had grown up there he was mil- navy and Russian guy and and this is right after the you know everything went down not even a year so we went to the naval base and I've got pictures and we see these. Um, warships and these fucking uh, Russian subs parked into these like bays. I mean, legitimate like Akula class attack nuclear submarine. Right. I'm I'm like maybe 200 feet. I'm taking pictures, and and I was thinking, I don't know, this is crazy. Now uh, now it's all you can't get anywhere near there. But it was kind of wild that I was so close to these like Russian, you know, huge warships and and subs. I mean, I was I was like you, you could almost and they were huge. You know, these things are massive. So I went there about five years ago. I just went as a tourist to see you because the Crimea? You know, yeah. Oh, so you went there way after. I, okay, so after, it was much later. That, yeah, much later. But even at that, and I didn't meet with anybody in the government or any business. It just, How'd you get in? Did you? No, I, fly I flew. In? I, I flew into Simferopol, and mm-hmm. then uh, from Moscow. Yeah, from Moscow. Yeah, and then uh, you know, and all the balaclava. I don't know if you went there. I went there. Right? I went there too. Yeah, yeah the, that underwater tunnel for yep. submarines and everything. Pretty cool. But the people I talked to, just cab drivers, waiters, waitresses, everybody, to a single person said, we are Russian. We are not Ukraine. That was my experience. Yeah, I mean, with, with a few, um, there was a few, I met some people in, in um, Sevastopol, and I went out, and then they actually were really nice and went back to their house and kind of had some were drinking and eating, and um, they had a few Tatar friends, and they weren't as 
on board with it, except they, they, they didn't want a war. And right over the, I mean, I actually yeah. met several people who came from Donetsk to Crimea. Um, and they were, you know, they were basically given a, if they wanted a passport, they were, they were given a passport, but they left to, to avoid. One of the crazy things I remember is we, we were, uh, we landed and it used to be, you know, Ukraine. So there was a whole customs section and you know, those little, uh, customs, uh, what would you call them? Those, like those, the station, kiosks, those stations, the stations kiosks the kiosk where you have the yeah. officer and the, yeah. you know, the, all the security. So they had all those there still, but they were all just pushed to the side and they were literally pushed to the side of the room. And you just kind of w- walked on. And then the other funny thing when, when I was there was the uh, menus. You'd go to restaurants, and a lot of the menus, instead of having a brand-new menu, they would just have they, – they crossed out with, like, a sticker the, the price in uh, Grivni, and they would just write in the price in rubles. Right. So it was a bit of a, you know, transitional thing. But I, I, I don't think they needed to fix – I'm not saying, you know, you could talk about whether it was right or wrong to take it, but I don't think they needed to fix the election. I'm sure it would have passed overwhelmingly without anybody trying to sway it. The Russians. So a lot of it, you know, people talk about the military there, that it was really cultural. And so when, when the Russians controlled Ukraine, they really suppressed Ukrainian language, Ukrainian uh, uh, films and stories mm-hmm. and everything. Well, then when the Ukrainians became independent, they, with a vengeance, came back the other way. So they forced the children to learn Ukrainian, not Russian. That you couldn't watch a Russian film or read a or read a Russian book. They put a clamp on it. They went after the church. They attacked the Russian Orthodox Church and switched it over. So well, a lot I, a lot of this was a reaction to what they were doing culturally, not but, even so much militarily. So once they started to say, "Hey, you know, this is you know we're Russian. We at least want equal status for us in Donbas and Luhansk." That's when they started to come in and start to attack them militarily. Well, what I what I know, and I've spent a lot of time in Ukraine as well, and I've spent time in Eastern Ukraine and 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 Lvov and and um and Chernivtsi, and I've spent time in I'm sorry, Western Ukraine, Lvov and Chernivtsi, and I've spent time in Eastern Ukraine, you know, and, and also in Kiev. And when you go to the West, have you been to Western Ukraine? I did not. It it feels a lot different. It does not yeah. feel like um, West uh, Eastern Ukraine or even Kiev. It feels it feels like a different place. The language is different. They they much they much more speak Ukrainian. Um, when you go to Eastern Ukraine, it feels more like Russia. So even within the country, you can feel that kind of that cultural divide, whether people are speaking you know Ukrainian or Russian or how they're you know how they kind of identify who they maybe you know if they're Russian or not or for Ukrainian. Some of them you know it's been twenty years, thirty years, but. It's a it's a really interesting cultural problem, and and you know going back a long time to the Golodomor in the 30s, I mean they took all the food out of Ukraine, and a lot of people died. So there's so much history and um, cultural conflict there. It's a lot more complicated than I think we see it on the news here. Well, where it's it's just a one sided. This is you know how it is, Jeff. That's my biggest disappointment is people are taking no consideration of the history of the area or know anything about it. It's a bumper sticker. Putin bad, Zelensky good, and that's the end of the story. They have no interest in the history. And so uh, even, like you say, for the western side of Ukraine, they collaborated and fought with the Nazis against the United States well, there's, and there's, Russia. There's, so, there's this term in Russian, which is called Benditovitz, which is like Bandera. This, you know, It's a really bad term to be called that. It's basically a traitor, and he was collaborating yeah. with the Nazis. So that's a, that's a word that's still you know, used in, in, the, in Russian language. But again, this it is, goes back it, to that it, time. And it's history. So, you know, that's why I think the people in that area that related really more to Russian, they said, this is our culture, and you can't take our cultural culture away from it. That makes it really personal. 
So now it's turned into a military conflict and kind of a you know proxy war, and uh, so yeah, it's just it's so horrible. I mean, it was it was kind of wild to me that a few months ago, you know, Trump was on some CNN deal and and he he just his comment was, "I just want the war to end. I want people to stop dying," and that was somehow taken as a a controversial position. And there 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 you know the the one thing that wasn't widely reported it was here here and there if you looked for it in the U.S. media is. There was basically last year a resolution to That's this correct. thing in, in Hungary, in Budapest. There was, That's they, were gonna, they were going to take, you know, cede Crimea officially. Um, they were going to basically give up autonomy to, to the, give autonomy to um, Donbass, Donetsk and Lugansk, to have them kind of be self-governing more or less with, you know, kind of with the Russians. And declare, and, and declare neutrality. And, and that was, and that was, that was and, and no NATO with that Ukraine. And that was it. That was done. I mean, it was, was it was, deal. it was inked. Yeah. And then Boris Johnson flew to um, Ukraine. And all of a sudden, it the deal fell apart. Yeah. So I don't know what happened, yeah. but but that seems to me I don't, you know, I'm I'm not some self you know expert in international relations, but Crimea is Russia. I don't think it's going to go back. Donetsk and, and Lugansk is basically a, a, a an area where I mean one of the things that pissed a lot of people off, and this goes back to the 2014 thing, is the Ukrainians cut off the ability for the pensioners in Donbas to get their money without crossing the 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 the, the uh, line. You know the the military right. the the, the uh, military line, so people couldn't get their their pensions. That upset people. They at one point turned off the water to Crimea, so so it's 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 a very complicated. It's it's not one sided, you know necessarily. But you never get that story when you hear the news at night. You go to any one of these stations, they don't give you any of that background. So that's a disappointment and. You know, uh, because of it, it's had quite a bit of an effect on us, especially the sanctions. So, uh, you know, our oil field companies lost their work there. Our, uh, because of counter sanctions, our fishermen, we lost about $14 million a year of selling salmon caviar mm-hmm. to Russia. And uh, now they've stopped all the Arctic work, the Arctic Council, the Arctic Economic Council, and all of those, even though we had nothing to do with the war. And by our charter and by our practice... We don't get involved in national security and military. We're about environmental protection, joint fisheries management, response to melting permafrost, none of this. So all of that has been stopped. So Even the, um, there, there's been some, long for a long time, these joint, um, f- I guess, on the task force, but these groups on, on the whaling and, and the polar bears and all of the, that's all been, that's all been joint stopped. Managed. That's all been stopped. And, you know, climate change research and everything like that. So, um Anyway, uh, so the position that I've been taking in with our State Department and even on the Russian side, I deal pretty regularly with the uh, Arctic uh, ambassador for Russia, Kuchunov, Mm -hmm. is to say, look, we can't comment on military or national security issues, but what we want is any negotiated settlement, and there will be a negotiated settlement, a mini Yalta or whatever it is. This will eventually be settled one way or another. We want a clause in that settlement to say we can immediately restart our Arctic cooperation. Well, there was just, uh, they've been doing this for a while, this Rachel Kalander group, this Arctic encounter. They had a thing here in Anchorage a few months ago, and I just happened to tweet out. I said, it's kind of interesting when you're having all the Arctic countries meet, except the largest one is not, nobody was there. And that was, again, taken as some, like, very controversial statement. That's all. I mean, it's kind of bizarre when the biggest Arctic, nobody's here from the biggest Arctic country, Russia. Well, and that was pointed out by the ambassador of Singapore there. You can't do Arctic policy without Russia. 
But they also had non-Arctic nations that were there, like Estonia and some of the others, and they were some of the most extreme. I, I talked to their ambassador and said, you know, look, we've got these other issues. We want to work together. Oh, we can't work with them on anything. I said, but we're protecting the environment. We're working together people to people. Oh, no, uh, you know, we, we, we can't do that. We have to take a hard line, you know. And so, you know, I was, I was, in a, I was actually in Estonia last year on Mar- March of 2022 so right after this invasion went down and um and i'd spent time in the past in latvia and, and you know i don't necessarily blame a lot of them they were kind of occupied by the germans and then the soviets and i understand they have reasons to not like that in the history but it's uh, a lot of people i talked to over there it was it was a it was a not everybody but for for many people i met it was a kind of visceral hatred and it was yeah. it's it's really it, it makes you worry like what's gonna you know it, it takes one event or one thing to happen to kick off something really scary, you know, for, for Europe, which could easily spread to the whole world. Well, they've got their own interests. What I just objected to is them not even recognizing the impact that it's having on us in Alaska. We're the reason why the United States is an Arctic nation. Mm-hmm. So we, we have every interest in, in seeing them now. You know, we talk about this vessel tracking system, so I noticed a lot of fishing boats up already fishing in the Arctic, the Ru- Russian side. Well, we've said we're having a moratorium on it. We can't fish up there. So we need to be working together with them. These are transboundary fisheries, and, you know, we need joint research, joint management, uh, you know, in the Arctic to make sure we don't go up there and screw something up. So I've been of, to this, all of that has been stopped as well. I've been to this marine exchange in, in June. I did a podcast, uh, I guess I looked it up four years ago with, uh, was Ed, what was the guy's name? Ed Page. Ed Page. So there's a big... Uh, downtown there's a, a room and it's a big screen and it's like a command center so talk about this um <coughs> marine exchange and what, what what they're doing so every international vessel is required by the international maritime organization to send out a signal where it is it's like airplanes it's like capstone for airplanes. Like, a tra- like, a, like an EL, like a transponder yeah. yeah it's a transponder automated identification system so we've set up 140 antennas around the coast of alaska and we receive this so they're transmitting every six seconds and we're accurate to three meters. Who's, pay, who's pay, who paid for all that? Well, uh, the federal government pays for part of it because the Coast Guard, we're marine, marine domain awareness for them. We got a contract with the Coast Guard. And uh, every bit of data that comes into us goes to the Coast Guard as well. State of Alaska appropriated $1.2 million. The rest is paid for by the marine industry because they all sign up. They want to know where their ships are. Oh, like a user fee. Yeah, yeah. they want to know. Yeah, the, sure. Yeah, you know, the, the barge operator wants to be able to tell the guys in Queethlick when the fuel barge is coming in. And, you know, if the, the ship has some mechanical problems or something, they want to know. They want to know where it is, where the next nearest vessel so, is. So this is a little different, but, but, but you know, it's military, but... You know, last month, uh, you know, pretty pretty wild. There was that that I think Russian Chinese flotilla that got pretty pretty close to us, and I, I don't I don't you know it's some saber rattling, and I don't know that that what what what's what is what could that mean? You know, there's 11, I think eleven large military ships. They're in international waters. You know, our ships do that all the time around the world. The other thing we do is we fly right over to their coastline, and then the, then our planes turn back, their planes come out. We do the same thing. It well, seems what, like it's a big deal, you know. Oh, we had in international airspace a plane. Well, well, what happened? Uh, a friend of mine said, "Oh my, oh my gosh!" And uh, I said, "I said, well, the, I explained the bomber. This happened. I said this happens all the time with the, you know, it's going back decades. So it's uh, it's something that we're used to. I, I said nobody really is like scared here, but I, I don't remember the last time there was there was a big naval. Pre, pre, and, and it was international waters. They didn't come into our waters. But 
Um, you know, you hear Sullivan, Senator Sullivan talking about it a lot. He referenced it yesterday at the Alaska Oil and Gas Association conference. And, um, you know, it, it seems like they do something, we do something, they, and it builds up. And then it just, you know, like I said before, one, one accident can kick off something pretty scary, like a war. So I've been doing quite a bit of work in ADAC lately. And, uh, it's the old, mil- so old naval base, right? Yeah. And so, you know, we've been promoting to say you ought to at least have a logistics center or something. I mean, it was given up while we were bracking bases. I think it was and 97 so, they closed that, right? Yeah, I think it may be even a little bit before them. But in any case, so, you know, they couldn't close J-Bear. They couldn't close uh, Eilson or any of those. And, you know, Ted was head of the uh, appropriations committee and leading this effort. And the guys from down south are like, closing these bases are killing us. You know, you got to do something. So it was the easiest one to give away, basically. There was no local constituency to complain about it or businesses or anything like that. But, I mean, it's ultimate strategic position in the Indo-Pacific arena. So well, we've got a place in Guam. You know, it makes sense we'd have a place in ADAC. Yeah. It's kind of the end of the, they call, what they call Guam, tip, tip of the spear. You know, it's way out there. It's kind yeah. of our last outpost. But we'll see. But, you know, it's the, mil- they the, mil- about- the military is as bureaucratic as anybody else. And Has- then so you've got, you know, the three services and then the Marines. And, you know, if one is going to come in and do something, well, who's going to pay for it? If it comes out of my budget, it's going to, you know, who's going to, why aren't they paying for it? So, I mean. Is there any serious talk about establishing another base in ADAC? Well, not a base. I mean, what we're proposing is a logistics center where they can, you know, there's uh, there's uh, 20 million gallons of fuel storage air, there's the air, there's the uh, airstrips, there's the uh, docks that are there, the warehouses, everything can be it's set why, up. My, my buddy Paxson, he's gone there a lot and they've yeah. some hunting trips and hiking, but it's yeah. like it's like the kind of ghost town deal. They used to have a McDonald's there, you know, yeah. back when it was big and um, he's thought Kale, my buddy Kale and Paxson have gone and made these videos of yeah. this kind of these dilapidated buildings, and it looks very eerie that whole place. But there's still a lot of stuff there. There is, yeah, and all of that can be made operational, you know, per, per, for a very reasonable cost. So we'll see. You know, it's um, you know our congressional delegation is supportive, but you know, uh, you get to the military, they can only do so much. They can't actually tell them what to do, right? So you were just so, recently in St. Petersburg, right? Yes, I was. So was it, would you, would you fly through Turkey or how'd you? I flew through Turkey and again, same thing. We had to fly around Ukraine and go the long way around uh, from Istanbul then uh, into St. Petersburg. Did you already have a visa or did you get a yeah, new visa? Yeah, I, I have an unlimited visa. See, I had my, my, my visa, I had a three-year uh, and it recently expired. So I need to try to, you have an unlimited visa. What is, what's that about? Well, it's... Uh, I mean, I just, I can buy a plane ticket and go. So they know who I am. I mean, I've worked, I've been there 30 times. I've like in your passport, on when does, do you have a visa? Like when does it expire? Yeah, it's, it's in the visa. Um, uh, I'm not sure that it does expire. Oh, I need to get but one but of in any case, I need to get one of those. So I so I got I got an invitation to go to this conference because I had been to a couple other comp, uh, Arctic conferences there. And uh, they wanted me to speak on uh, uh, protecting biodiversity in the marine environment, which is, comes back to the marine exchange. So what we're seeing now is because of sanctions uh, in Europe against Russian oil, they're diverting it through the Bering Strait. It's heading to India and China. So this is a high-risk situation. Yeah, I mean, imagine, like, imagine an accident or a spill. There's, no, would, there's, nothing, be, there's nothing up there to, to respond. 
Right. And even if you did, it's, if you've got ice at all, it gets hard to clean it up in ice. If it gets in the ice, it's going to melt for years and years. So uh, anyway, I was there to propose for, you know, from the Marine Exchange that we do a joint vessel tracking, monitoring, emergency response system like we have in Alaska here. And uh, so... Uh, how, many Amer- how many Americans were there? I was the only American. There were 7,000 people there from 130 countries, and I was the only American. What, what, were you a novelty? Were people, were, was it negative, I, positive? Was no, it- I, I think it was pretty positive. They were surprised, you know, for one thing, you know, that, that I was there. But uh, in any case, and I did notify our State Department and the FBI that I was going. They all told me that I shouldn't go, don't go, don't go, it's, it's dangerous. I said, well, these guys know who I am, and... You know, if they'd have done something, they'd have done something before. I was military intelligence and uh, North Vietnamese linguist during the Vietnam War. So they know my background, but they know, you know, what I've done over the years, too. Now, you talk about taking pictures. That's one thing I didn't do while I was there, okay? Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't be stupid about it. But uh, anyway, it was incredible to see Indi- uh, India, the Arab countries, the Asians, and they're cutting deal after deal. And we're just seeding all of our ground there. And uh, what do you other- think the? I mean, I, I almost feel like the strategy might be similar to the '80s in Afghanistan. It's like give give the, the you know there was then the Mujahideen, the Afghanis enough to kind of fight the Russians, but not beat them. And then you know you wear them down, wear them down, weapons, resources, and then you know eventually they they did leave. But it, that lasted like ten, almost ten years. Yep. And I, w- I almost wonder if, if it's like the policy is give the Ukrainians enough to not win, but to, 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 to draw it out for a long time and make the Russians spend more money and more people and more resources. I mean, I wonder if that's part of the strategy. Well, I mean, people have openly said that. We're trying it seems to de- like it we're is. We're trying to degrade Russia's capability. but At the expense for, of for the poor mil- people in Ukraine who are, who are dying in this thing. And, and that's the strategy is until the last Ukrainian is dead. I've heard people say that too, you know. So that's why I say it's kind of a proxy war. Um, and you get to Afghanistan, yeah, we, we, we financed the Mujahideen, and then what did it turn into? The Taliban that came and bombed us. So Bin Laden was you, one you of them got, back then. Yeah, he was exactly. one of them. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you got to take a longer-term view of this. If you just knee-jerk, you know, okay, well, we're now we're against Russia. Well, first it was because they were communists, and they were spreading communism. Well, then after that, they weren't communists anymore, and they invited thousands of of companies to go in they all went in there so um you know it's uh well we talked before about the, the history of ukraine and the, and the cultural history and all of and some of the really bad parts and like the you know the glodomor but and how most people are unaware of of of, of all of this americans the, the the recent history um we tried very hard to beat the soviets we did beat the soviets they they broke up and became all these different countries the problem is, I think, is after we did that, when, when after World War II, we created the Marshall Plan. We, we had to rebuild the plan. We, we worked really hard to make sure things got put back together properly. When the Soviet Union collapsed, we kind of said, well, great, you know, good luck, have fun, um, let it roll. And, and Russia became extremely corrupt and um, lawless in the 90s. And if you've been over, you know, oh, yeah. talk to any Russian who was around back then, they'll tell you, unless they... We're one of the oligarchs who made the money, which is very, very few. It was, you know, lines, shortages of food, um, cold, you know, hot water. All these things were happening all over the country. 
and I think there was an opportunity for for the West and for for us to help re, you know rebuild transition Russia. We didn't. NATO kept. I mean, there was an agreement back in the you know '90s that NATO wasn't going to go expand. That was a Budapest agreement, Buda, and it's expanded. Yeah. It's added you know a dozen countries. And 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 then Putin, you know, Putin came around because everything was so fucking bad. It was so screwed up under under Yeltsin and 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 the, and the, and the lawlessness and the killings and the theft and all of this stuff was going on. That's that's what created the conditions to let Putin rise. But Jeff. So the, all those countries. I'm not saying we're. No, I'm, no. I'm not saying you know we're totally to blame, but no, no, it's, compli- I'm, I'm, it's, it's, I'm it's not, complicated. I'm not either. I, I'm just you know when you look at it. So a lot of those countries, twelve of them did. They go. They joined NATO and all of that, but Russia didn't do anything about it. What they said was, and this is what William Burns, our current CIA director, said over and over: "You try going into Ukraine, and that is a red line that you will call it." will cross and you will start a war he openly said that and then we did that started with george bush 2008 joined nato and and uh and uh well there's the there's the volgograd gap that goes is a line into russia and it it it, it's i i you know i i I always try to when i say these things don't confuse it as i'm saying we're at fault or we're we're bad but um, i'm not saying that but if if the russians or the chinese or somebody started putting and, and there's already talk about that in Cuba now or in Mexico, we would have a big uh, thing yeah. to say about that. So for them, this is their equivalent of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. And I'm old enough, I remember we you know, were learning to you know get under our desks at school and everything like that. But uh, that, that is their equivalent of it, right on their border. And they made it very clear that that was the case. So uh, again, you know, I'm... Coming out of the Vietnam War, which is a man, totally manufactured war, fake Gulf of Tonkin incident, and, you know, we, we made up that war. They were no threat to us. They're a bunch of rice farmers. I went there a few years back. They were, you know, surprised to see a big white guy speaking well, Vietnamese. But they, they didn't, they said, geez, you guys weren't even here. I said, do you feel bad about us? You weren't even here that long. I said, you, the, the Chinese and the Japanese and the French were much worse than you were. Well, they lost three million people, but and then and can I sell you a T-shirt? You know, well, and then, I mean, then so. kind of like you know, with, with Snowden and his stuff with the, the NSA. I mean, the Ellsberg guy released all well, the stuff, and it was like he was a you know villain. Go back and read the and Pentagon Papers. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, he, he, he put all that out and said, "Hey, this, actually this happened." So the stuff was all contrived. Really, I'm I'm because of that. You know, I'm just I'm against all wars, and so uh, I do think it's reasonable for us to say, like you mentioned, is that. You know, we need to look for some kind of a negotiated settlement. This well, we, isn't, Jeff, look at, we're back to World War One trench warfare. That's how far we've gone back on this. And that just doesn't happen. So, well, it's trench warfare with also with these drones. Yeah. Both sides are, you know, whether it's 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 uh, in the battlefield or whether it's in the, in the, in the water, they're, they're yeah. attacking. So it's like you have these extremely low-cost pieces of equipment now that are able to attack very, you know, very expensive ships and, um, um, yeah. aircraft, so it's, it's a whole different kind of new war that, you're right, in some ways it's it's old school, but then you have this new technology that's, I mean, we could, the U.S., the West could end this war in a day. We say we're not, you know, we're going to we're gonna help negotiate a, an agreement, an agreement, um, a peace, and we're going to stop giving weapons. I mean, we, we, we could make, make, make force to an agreement, but we're, we're basically just saying we're going to give money and weapons for as long as we can to draw the war out. We, we, we could... Definitely negotiate a peace. 
We could. Um, and I just wonder about the strategy. Well, we're going to try and to degrade Russian military capability. Well, it's all their ground forces and everything. Well, if they don't have that, what's left? It's atomic warfare. Okay. Which and is, that's, a, which is that's the most terrifying. Yeah. That's what we don't want. So, you know, I, I really, uh, you know, again, you know, I'm not trying to comment on our, you know, national security stand on this. I was really concerned about cluster bombs. Because I saw that. I went back to Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos just a few years That's ago. That's the ones we just, we just started giving to Ukraine, right? Which we I, I guess were, and weren't, they out, weren't they outlawed by, the, by treaty? And by many, most? many countries they were. And so, you know, the, uh, they lay out there. They don't go off. So when you go to those Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, you see all these little kids, their arms blown off, their legs blown off. I mean, there's still one person a month dying from unexploded ordnance. And that's 40 years ago since the Vietnam War right? So these things are horrible. So we'll escalate that. So what's the next step? Maybe the nuclear power plant in Ukraine. That's next. The dam is already oh, blown up. And, so, yeah. Yeah. and the dam is already blown up and no one taking credit for that. And how about the, uh, uh, how about the uh, gas pipeline? So for many years in Dutch Harbor, I worked as a commercial diver. I specialize in explosives underwater. I did a lot of construction and, you know, demolishing old, uh, old, uh, structures of World War II, and I can tell you that that is a highly sophisticated operation. Who do you think? Blew, who do you think blew the pipeline? Well, I mean, it has to be one of the Western powers, absolutely. Just from a technical point of view, there's no way that you know a couple of Ukrainian guys on a yacht, you know, are going to go down there and do that. 250 feet of water. Mm-hmm. You need special shape charges that have uh, dispersed the air out so the jets can develop. I mean, it just really, really. Yeah, you know, one of the one of the craziest videos I think I've I've watched, just kind of looking back on at the time when it was considered almost comical to now, is in 2018 Trump was in Europe with a Stolzenberg from NATO and all these all these you know Germans and, and he, have you seen this video where he's basically saying we're paying for your defense, but you're making deals with Russia for pipelines. You're depending on Russia right. for all of your energy, and we're pay- and and they're almost kind of la- I mean they're kind of laughing at him. And this is in 2018, and he basically called it. He's like, "You guys are ceding all of your most of your energy demand, you know, needs to Russia, but then we're paying for a bulk of your defense against who the the Russians." It's it's so kind of wild watching that now. So then, know, after all this, so then we put you know the the uh, sanctions in on, on Russian oil and gas, right? So jacked the price of uh, oil and gas up, created worldwide inflation all over the world. And uh, so raised the price of oil. So Putin was actually making more money than he was before. Yeah. And who couldn't figure that out, right? I mean, that's just well, obvious. Well, we, so you know, we did too. We saw people, the, that's when the, how we got the big dividend last year was because of the price of oil going up. That's exactly right. So, um, but people are going to get the, uh, India, China, uh, Japan, you know, they're going to get this. Energy is the central organizing principle of modern uh, civilization. Ever since we learned to control fire, we wouldn't have. We'd be out there trying to look, picking out fruit. You couldn't be, live very much on the blueberries up here, okay? But that's really what we are down to. So, uh, anyway, uh, well, energy—you can't, you can't just mess with it. I, know, I just was at this uh, this Alaska Oil and Gas Association conference, and there was a speaker uh, talked about when COVID. I think you know pre-COVID we were we were global demand global consumption was 100 million barrels a day, um, and 
and peak COVID, I'm pretty sure that was the, the right number. And then peak COVID, it was down to, I was, I would have guessed half. It was only 80 million, but it, it was only down 20%. And then now we're above that. We're at 102, yeah. you know, a million barrels a day. So, so there's a, there is a massive demand. Well, and in there's, the world there's for 2 this. billion people of the world that don't have any energy that want it. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're cooking with cow dung, dried cow dung pies, you know? So what are you going to do about them? So, you know, I, you just, we accelerate as much as possible alternative energy, but let's be realistic. You're not going to displace oil and gas for quite a few years. Well, that's the like some of these lunatics who just got on the Chugach electric board. They want to turn the gas turbines off. It's insane. You know, you can't, you know, sure. I'm all for renewable, but you're totally right. You cannot just turn the spigot off. It's 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 impossible. It's 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 totally ridiculous. You know, it's lunacy. So I really object to people like uh, for the Willow Project. Let's take that. Oh, we've got to stop that because it's going to add to global warming. No, if we don't develop that, it's just going to come from somewhere else. There's there's the International Energy Agency says there's 49 years left of of proven oil reserves. So it's just going to come from somewhere else. You know, we're, we're just really an attack on, on us and the Arctic. And they've singled the Arctic out. we got to stop Arctic oil and gas development because, you know, uh, uh, the uh, temperatures are rising faster there. Well, is isn't going to do a single thing. It won't mean one drop less being burned, right? It's stupid. Well, and one, one of the things that I've, I've <coughs> always been puzzled by, by mostly Democrats or kind of progressives is they're, their insistence on like electronic vehicles, but but to have those, but then their their insistence on not you know allowing gas to be produced, which powers a lot of like electricity and also mining, which right. you need for the fucking batteries. So right. I mean, I think Democrats could really own this EV issue if they were also you know for for mining um, and, and gas, and it would also kind of pigeonhole the Republicans. But because they're against the things that they need, you need to have these electric cars, it creates a really Bizarre situation. So you need, uh, the average electric car takes like 193 pounds of copper. But when you mine copper ore, if you got pretty high grade copper ore, you get 3% recovery. That means you need to mine three tons of copper ore for every car. One car. Where's that going to come from? That's that much, really? Yeah, it's that much, three tons. Yeah. A 3% recovery rate, 193 pounds, do the math. So, you know, uh, it, it does. It's going to be a, uh, and even some of them, Tesla and some of the others are saying, look, we're going to have shortages of these. You know, we you can't. You well, there, know, there's so. a, uh, initiatives in California, and even they're talking about nationally, you know, but in California, it's like so many, 80% by 2035, I think is the number. I mean, they want they want to, they want to you know, in, in span of a little over 10 years, they want to radically transform how, and I'm all I'm all for. It. I mean, my cousin's big in the car business. I mean, they've gotten a lot better. They've gotten more efficient. They can go a lot further. Yeah, I think that's fine. Yeah. And, and that that if the market that's a good thing. I'm not against that. But to to mandate it, but then not have the ability to make it possible seems seems really so. So where's the elect, where's the electricity going to come from? They're already having brownouts in California. Well, where, I know. Where, for example, in California, they'll do a thing now where if you charge it at night, you pay less. Then if you charge, because yeah. they're trying to get people to, they're trying yeah. to balance the grid. All that is good. It's just not going to be a hundred percent transition for quite a few years. So, you know, this whole idea where we're going to stop oil and gas in the Arctic, that's just economic suicide for us. You know, we, we need to do it at the same time. So I'm working on a project in the Aleutians, which is uh, geothermal and to take that uh, stranded energy and create hydrogen with it. 
Mm. So Japan really wants that for the market out there. So, you know, the Aleutians have all this energy out there. There are very few people living there. So uh, you can make uh, non-carbon fuels or net zero carbon fuels. Uh, you can also directly reduce iron ore with it without having to do smelting because the hydrogen interacts with the oxygen mm-hmm. and the iron ore. And you get pure, pure iron and water. Right, by exposing the iron ore to it. So there's things that we should do all the above, what, what, all what, the above. But just what, what are the issues? Just distance and cost? Is that? It's just, you know, it's just, uh, you know, one of the biggest risks is the exploration on the front end to prove up the resource. We know there's uh, volcanoes out there. So working with some companies now that do basically like 3D seismic like you do for oil, but they're looking for geothermal water resources. So that's the stage that we're at right now. What, what, what are you um, curious what you think about the the gas line? I mean, to me, it's something that's, you know, been talked about for decades. If there's ever a time to build it, it's, it seems to be right now with, with the demand in Asia and Japan and Korea and also with Australia, you know, having ships from Australia have to go through the South China Sea. We are a straight shot to Japan and China um, and, and Korea and also just this, this whole Russia situation with, with, with gas. Why? I mean, it seems like if there was ever a time to build it, it's right now. Well, also so we're having the, the, the a shortage issue. of cooking the gas for, for our own consumption. Oh, I here. agree on that 100%. So the issue is, is the world is awash in gas. There's no shortage of it, and especially with this uh, gas coming over because Europe put in sanctions. So the latest price that was negotiated spot price uh, for a Japanese utility was $9 and 40 cents, uh, per million BTU. We need about 11, we need about another $2 on that. And we need like a, a 20 year guarantee and we could build the pipeline, So it ought to be left on the table. You know, it just, you know, we've got the permits, we've got the export license. It's a matter of timing. There's no reason to say we're never going to do the gas line project. Just to me, it seems like if it was ever going to happen, it'd be, yeah now would be the time and it's it's i think it's being talked about and but it seems like a lot of the people talking about it are the, are the polit- politicians and i don't i don't hear as much from the companies and no, they're the ones who have to be the most engaged no, on it so yeah the, the sierra club and the center for biological diversity have filed a lawsuit now against the export license saying oh no it's going to create global warming well if it goes to japan japan still burns a lot of coal and a lot of oil so the natural gas is 50 percent the emissions of coal uh, and 25% less emissions for natural gas. So that would actually do something to export it. Now they're filing a lawsuit against it. I mean, this is just, people have no basic understanding of, well, of yeah, the yeah. realities of, of energy, economics, yesterday, re- global. Yesterday at the AOGA conference, Dun, uh, Rick Perry was here, former governor of Texas and energy secretary, and he was on a panel with uh, Dunleavy. Yeah, Rick Perry guy, I really enjoyed watching him, but... Uh, they, they, somebody asked a question, what's the one thing, one of the things we can do to, you know, um, allow for more development. And, uh, he had a very short answer. He, he said, when, when it comes to litigation, loser pays. And if you have a loot, you know, cause we don't yeah. really have that. So there's really not a lot of penalties for, for filing yeah. lawsuits if it's frivolous. And I think that would be a great, th- I mean, I think t- he said Texas did that, uh, a long time ago. They, they had a loser pays, um, law passed and he said the the lawsuits went way down so here's another thing that that's yeah and that's that's really a good idea 
<clears throat> a lot of times it doesn't get to that. So what they do in, in, in is that if you've got a willing and cooperative bureaucracy like we have at you know EPA or, or uh, Bureau of Land yeah, Management they, they and Interior, they settle. It's sue and settle. So I bring the lawsuit and then it's wink, wink, nod, nod. Okay, I'll write this settlement. It's worse than anything that would come out of the court, right? And the people that are affected by it have no say in it. There's no accountability. There's nothing. This is, well, a, this when, is a major scam, sue well, and settle. One of the things they did when they when they finally got the pipeline taps approved is they, they one of the provisions in the in the law was was no more litigation. Right. They said, fuck it, that's it. That's this it. is it. No more litigation. And that baby and that baby got built. And even back then it was one vote. It was Spiro Agnew. You know, yeah. it was close. But still it was no more lawsuits. They stopped it. Yeah. And they knew they had to build it. And and that was part of it. And you know, that's not like, so this is not like an unprecedented thing where we say, look, we're going to do all the things we have to do to, even Willow's, there's another lawsuit right now with Willow. I mean, it's approved, but there's still another lawsuit that's, that's out there. Um, that hopefully will be, you know, thrown out or resolved pretty soon. But it's just, you're right, it's just fucking nonstop. It is. And, and yeah. it's, it's, it's very few people that live here. Yeah. And they, they don't live here. The sue and settle, they, they could do that, take that, well, we've just, you know, agreed to a settlement, we both signed it, and now that's a lot. It doesn't even go to court. That's the worst possible. And, and this is an intentional strategy to do this. Well, it's, I, I, unfortunately, I wish I, I had a more optimistic, um, I look around at what's happening in, you know, Anchorage here with the homelessness, it gets worse, and we can't build a bridge, and we can't build anything, and we just, I, I, w- I hope things get better, but I just, looking forward, I don't have a super optimistic um, outlook on, on our, our state. I mean, do you? Am I, am I wrong there? Well, I, I tell you one thing, though. Lisa Murkowski, that she did was really good. She got some, uh, in the energy bill, she got in some uh, uh, things that are going to expedite the permitting. And so that really helped out. And Sullivan has also been on this. So they did put some provisions in there. And the reason they got it was because of Manchin. Manchin was the one that brought the votes across. Now they came and double-crossed him back on that pipeline, you know, in his area. Mm-hmm. But he <laughs> yeah, brought a lawsuit, and they won that. So that at least that pipeline is going through. And it was already 90% built. They sued over the last 10%. So uh, anyway, he, he helped us out quite a bit. I got to meet him when he was here. I was, what he, a gentleman. What a great guy. I actually was able to do a little brief uh, interview with him and Lisa Murkowski on the yeah. podcast at the – I guess it was a year ago. It was a, what was that conference? They were here for some, maybe that Arctic Encounter yeah. deal. And anyways, he was just a really, he was so nice. I mentioned the West Virginia and I mentioned the kind of moonshine. And he told me if I ever get to DC, to, you know, he's got a friend who I guess makes moonshine. He was telling me the story and just a very, very pleasant, um, professional, collegial guy to talk to. I told him, I said, uh, you know, you remind me of, of a Chinese guy. He said, what, what are you talking about? I said, you remember the guy who, the single guy who was standing in front of that row of tanks. Oh, and Tiananmen uh, Square. Uh, tank guy in Tiananmen, Tiananmen Square. Square. Yeah, tank, tank man. I said, that was you. He said, all right, I'll take it. Standing up to the, yeah. Because he's, he's an, him and, it's, it's, it's really interesting how there's 100 people in the Senate. It's basically him and Murkowski, a few, a few other, maybe cinema. There's not that many that are kind of, can, yeah. can kind of go either way. You know, so many are just dug into the one, either yeah. side. And that, that's actually ends up being, powerful because you saw this whole infrastructure bill and how how they were able to you know get a few of them together and i think i've talked to her on the podcast about how there was i think eight or ten of them they'd meet in different people's places and they'd kind of iron it out and they were willing to you know negotiate and compromise and they you know something came out of it yeah and there were some good things there so that's going to help 
I'm still pretty concerned but, about the fucking inflation. I mean, we went from spending three trillion a year with COVID to five trillion. You know, just so much. So it's just it used to be the billions was a lot. Now now it's everything's in trillions. Yeah. Yep. Well, somebody's going to pay for that. Our our kids, I guess, down the road. It's just you know they, even the indexing how they how they talk about with the CPI and everything with inflation. They try to say it's. Not that high. I mean, you you go go buy anything. You, it's they aren't fooling anybody. Especially you know? the basics. You go buy food. You buy fuel. You go out. I don't know if you noticed at a restaurant now. All the Everything. prices are up twenty five percent at least. I just went to food. I just went to get. I, I was uh, before I, the podcast. I was driving. I was a little hungry. I said I like I like to go to IHOP for whatever reason. I enjoy going to IHOP and having some food there. And I sit down. I read when I go there. And I sit down. And I get an omelet and an omelet and a coffee. 22 bucks. Right. That's $5 over what it used to be. I mean, that should not be $22 for, you know? So you see it everywhere in, in gas and, and food and all this. And yeah. when they try to kind of fool people and say, oh, it's, I remember Biden a few months ago, he said, he said, he said, inflation's, inflation is, is, has gone um, down. And, and what, what he was talking about was, or no, it wasn't down. It was inflation has only gone up by this much. And what he was talking about was the month over month. So it's still like 8%. Well, but they're trying to say, oh, it's barely gone up from, from this but high. Jeff, you know? Jeff, that's the rate of inflation. Right. That's on top of it. That doesn't, Correct. That doesn't stop all the inflation that happened before that. That's exactly. That's and, all there. And then, and then, and then how they calculate it with, with, with the basket and how they leave certain things out. And like I said, people know how much things cost. You and it's, it's really, really. And wages aren't. They are going up, but not, not, not you know, at the right, same rate. So the the average person is. I was just talking to a friend. We're, we've been trying to, for a while, buy some land out near big. You know, one of Big Lake, Crooked Lake. We're trying to find. First of all, nothing's really for sale. Second of all, when it does go for sale, it's so expensive. It's so fucking expensive to buy even raw land. And I know so many people that came here in the sixties, seventies, eighties. You know, they they worked. They 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 weren't making a lot of money, but they were working hard. They they could afford to buy some land, a couple acres, and build a cabin. Working like working people right now who are or hardworking that are that aren't making a ton of money, you know, working class people, middle class, they cannot afford to buy a little piece of well, land and a cabin the, and like it, like that used to be the case, you know. And the interest rate on a loan. Oh, nine, ten percent easy on land. So that has that has a big impact. So um yeah, that's the one anomaly of all of this is that real estate has not gone down. Even with you know some downturns in the economy and things like that, I mean it's 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 historically for going back for ever you know when the rates go up the prices go down. Well now the rates go up the prices go up because there's there's been a shortage of and before oh eight oh nine crisis there was an overbuild. Since then people got nervous. There's there's an underbuild. So so there's not enough housing nationwide. We see that really here in Alaska. So you have these high rates and 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 prices are also going up which is never supposed to, it should be inverse, you know, more higher rates, lower price. That's why I say it's an anomaly. Well, Paul, it's been great talking to you. Um, you're, you're a guy I always like running into in June. Are you going to be down in Juneau again? I will be. I think I think I might have your old, were you in number one in the Shattuck building to the, uh, no, or number it's, two? Uh, I, I was in, yeah, I was in number one. So if you go in, if you go in and you walk in, you're to the right. The first to the right. Okay, so I'm the first to the left, right? I've been there for a couple oh, of years. okay, yeah. So I don't know who was there yeah. before, but... Um, it's a nice little building over there. I, I, I like that place. Yeah. You were, you were there for a, quite, quite a while. Quite a yeah. few years, yep. So you're going to be back down? I will be back down, yep. See you at the bowling and, the, uh, of course, the karaoke. Yeah. And if the folks are listening, if you're ever in Juneau and you see Paul and there's a karaoke night, go go watch it because it's, <laughs> so, it's something to watch. It's really, you're really good. You're, you're kind of a showman. Uh, and, and I'll share the link to the, 
you with a Soviet choir, army choir, singing the KGB marching band, singing the come you, you back, back in, the USSR, in the USSR by the Beatles. I mean, I can't believe they were so. You could tell they were maybe a little bit nervous, and then all of a sudden they got real into it. Oh, yeah, it was great. Well, Paul Fu, Fu's former commissioner, commerce commissioner, former mayor, lobbyist, kind of a jack of all trades. Been, been great talking to you. Thanks, Jeff. All right, we'll have you on again sometime. Folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Let's